welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore, Jocelyn Gotto, and James Kazina. This podcast is an all-in-one devotional, essential for anyone trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in today's world. Each month, we'll release four different episodes, including stories from the field, preaching, and conversations with special guests. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. Here's today's episode. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another Conversations. It's Mike Gore here, and I am sitting with someone who I love to talk to, and I think today you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So, Carl Faze, welcome to Conversations with Open Doors. Uh, Mike, great to be with you. Great to be with the team at Open Doors, and really good to be supporting such a wonderful ministry. Hey, now, look, you guys are spokespeople for us, you and Jane, a beautiful couple that do incredible stuff. Carl has been the, the senior pastor of Guy and Mir Baptist up until 2014, and that means, Carl, that we grew up pretty close to each other. I went to St. John Sutherland, so we were just down the road. Um, yeah, great, then, great part of the great part of the world, great part of Sydney. Yeah, please, yeah. it's been a, it was a privilege to live there. For, we continue to live here, which is great, wonderful area. That's right. Not taking it down the, the, the lines of race or anything, but said by most white people, I guess, um, in Australia, that the Shire is God's country. But being yeah. the only brown skin in um, skin kid in school until I was sixteen. A little bit of a different version of the Shire, uh, from my point of view. Absolutely, I remember. I remember taking our kids. Uh, we, you, I don't know if you were you ever involved in those um, big school things where they had a choir at the, at the Southern Entertainment Center, and uh, they'd have like uh, you know eighty kids on a platform. And Jane and I, very early on, kind of leaned over and said to each other. That's a very white group. <laughs> <laughs> it's changing now, though. There is a, there is a bit of a shift now, um, and certainly there's a larger percentage of um, different ethnic groups in the Shire, which is fantastic. But its reputation in that area is not necessarily great. A path that I didn't expect this conversation to go down. I mean, who could ever forget <laughs> the uh, Sylvania Waters TV series? What a highlight oh, of um, Australian TV. <laughs> yeah, well, most people in the Shire are trying to forget it. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, moving right along. Look, Carl, an incredible pastor, senior pastor. Um, your dad has been a huge um, proponent yeah. and supporter of Open Doors for like multiple decades. But now, and probably more well known for your role as CEO of Olive Tree Media, probably little known fact is that you were the co-founder of Arrow Leadership, another incredibly influential leadership movement for young Christian leaders. Um, but coming forward into your, your sort of life today, Jesus, a game changer. I think so many people watching this will have seen that. But um, you've had Series 1 and Series 2, an incredible resource for the Australian church. Um, looking back, is that one of the probably projects you're most happy with from Olive Tree? Oh, totally, Mike. I mean, we uh, we did a series before that, an apologetic series, and then we decided to kind of expand it a bit more last year, which just seems so bizarre given the situation this year. But last year, when we filmed Jesus the Game Changer 2, we actually filmed it in 11 different countries. Uh, must have been 40 to 50 different cities and locations, uh, 50 50 different guests. Uh, it's a fabulous series. We talked to great people, went to wonderful places, um, worked with a really good team, which means the production values of the series is very easy to watch. And uh, so, yeah, when, when I watch, <laughs> in fact, I've been watching it a bit lately because I've been doing some sermons because we they've got the Jesus the Game Changer 2 
um, church campaign on. So, I, so I'm just re-watching an episode and every time I watch, I go up and talk to Jane and, and our other staff in our office here and I, I walk up the stairs and say, uh, that's a great episode. <laughs> and after about three weeks, as I started to walk up, up, up the stairs when they knew I was watching an episode, they'd start saying as I walk up the stairs, that's a great episode. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's just a, it's fabulous material. It's great to watch and it's, we're really proud of it. And look, before we get to a couple of questions today around faith and culture, and that's one of the beautiful things about yep. this setting, is that we can talk to really influential Christian people that have got a great depth of knowledge, not only theolo um, theologically, but also just within an understanding of how Christianity kind of interacts with culture in, in 2020 and beyond. But well, what I would say is that in light of this year, particularly COVID and, and isolation and lockdown and all of the things we've kind of walked through, what I've seen echoed in the church is so many people looking for great resources to be able to kind of keep that faith connection at home. I know that we came out at Open Doors with something called House Church, and we had several, two and a half thousand people register for those resources. But what I want to encourage anyone watching today is Jesus the Game Changer, both one and two, they are perfectly suited um, tools and resources to run that kind of house church stuff in your home. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't seen it yet, really I want you to go and explore it because it's not something that you sort of need to run as an alpha course or evangelistic tool, although mm -hmm. it can be used for that. It's something that through across the breadth of our faith journey, these um, series are really inspirational to faith. So Carl, where could people actually get their hands on them if they're looking for resources to sort of keep that connection of faith throughout 2020 as the world kind of oscillates between being opened up and then restricted again? Yeah, I mean, we can uh, clearly just basically just go to our website, olivetreemedia.com.au, go to the shop. You can actually buy um, a, a DVD for those who still use a DVD. You can stream uh, season one. Season two is slightly different. There's a long story which you won't go into and about licensing. Um, you can buy a USB, which you can just go straight in the back of your, your TV. Uh, we've also got a platform called Feed Your Soul. It's a streaming platform. And on that streaming platform, you get access to all of our all of our series, and it's like thirty hours of material on the Feed Your Soul stream platform. So, now if you if you frequent uh, well-known Christian bookshops like Guron, we're there as well. So, yeah, plenty of plenty of places you can get hold of Jesus the Game Changer one or two. Carl, for Jesus the Game Changer, you came out with a series called Towards Belief, and it sort of outlined several what you called faith blockers to, I guess, faith in the Western world. Um, can you maybe maybe walk us through three of the more influential blockers to faith in, in a Western context? I think that there's a yeah. lot we can learn here, particularly given, again, 2020, but also the wrestle that we're all facing in, hey, in the absence of a centralised church, how do I follow Jesus? And am I doing it right? So, so what yeah. are some of those blockers? And I guess on the flip side of that, how can you use those blockers to end up reviving our faith and inspiring yeah. our faith? Look, I'd say two things, Mike, because I was thinking about that question. In some ways, the blockers uh, break into two areas, and, and that's something that we're all dealing with. One, and this is kind of what our series Towards Belief struggled with, or not struggled with, it just had to deal with. One is that there's now cultural blockers. Now, what people used to mostly in apologetics, which is giving an offence to your faith, not saying you're sorry you're a Christian, but apologetics is giving a defence for faith. 
most of the apologetic questions have tended to be intellectual questions. So this, the academic rigour around what, what we believe and why we believe. But in a way that there is actually, I want to get onto those, but in a way there's actually more, there's more cultural blockers. And the two major cultural blockers are actually the issue of church abuse and the, the, the Royal Commission into the institutional abuse of children, not just churches, but churches were uh, high profile. Now, my prophetic word, but I'm a Baptist, so don't take any problems with God here. Too much. You know, but, uh, you know the, my prophetic word is I think that that will, that will die off. I mean, in the sense that, you know, from the, step, from the mid-90s, most denominational groups have uh, put instituted changes, which would mean that that sort of abuse would not would be very difficult for ever to happen again on the scale that it did before. That's not to say there won't be individual cases. But the other one, which is a bigger issue in the cultural blockers, is actually around sexuality and gender. And that, that's not going to go away. In fact, it will get a lot worse. And so a Christian response to, to whether you can be a Christian and be active as a same-sex attracted person, not just the fact that you're attracted, but that you act on that attraction, that, that is going to be a cult, that will continue to be a cultural blocker, and it's incredibly difficult. And I don't want to get into that at the moment because it's such a big, complex issue, but we've got to understand that we don't, when we deal with blockers, we, we can't just deal with intellectual blockers. We have to deal with cultural blockers, and those two are, are two of the biggest. In the area of intellectual blockers, I, still, I think that the kind of one that's always been around <laughs> from Jesus' time is, is actually the issue of suffering. I think the, uh, the other issue is the one about, around science, and I think the third sleeper in the series is around exclusive faith. Now, why I say it's a sleeper is that you see someone talk about exclusive faith and you kind of think, oh, yeah, we know that. It's not a big deal. But when we start to watch the episode and consider the issues, it's huge. And it, and it relates a bit to what we were saying before around the ethnic issue. I mean, in countries, most Western countries around the world right now are a mix of ethnicities. Um, you know, all, all major cities are, are just like that. The world has come to the major cities. So how do you keep how do you keep a sense of, of um, cohesion in a major city? Well, basically trying to say that one faith is right and the other is wrong are seen as not just a, a religious question; they're seen as a community cohesion question, and that becomes very difficult for us. Um, but so as I said, suffering, science, and anyone you know, just keep talking for a minute. Suffering has been around forever, Mike. I mean, you think about when Jesus was asked by Martha and Mary to come because their brother, whom Jesus loved, Lazarus, was, Lazarus was dying. And when, both, when, they, when Jesus delays, turns up, what does Martha and Mary say to Jesus? Essentially, if he had turned up on time, he would not be dead. Now, you think about that. That is a question of suffering. You know, so even in Jesus walking around on earth, he is dealing with this issue, and we are still today. If we believe in a good God that loves all people and we believe in a God that is all-powerful, then if, if, that if I am suffering, that becomes an issue around the person of God. And so why would a good God allow suffering? And, and there's plenty of responses to that. But it, it continues to be an age-old issue, and I think one of the one of the things that we we're trying to do towards belief, Mike, is to understand that the people who are asking these questions are like Martha and Mary. 
they're average people. They're the people in the delivery truck um, delivering to the local store cases of Coca-Cola. They have exactly the same questions as all of us have. The trouble is, as Christians in the area of apologetics, we tend to answer like they're PhDs, talking to PhDs. Now, we need them, but we talk in ways that they don't understand. I don't know you, Mike, but I've read a couple of books on apologetics. I got halfway through the first chapter, and I'm like, I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> I won't mention any names, but halfway through, I got through a whole chapter and thought, okay, Carl, are you going to be able to use this material? And the answer is, no, I'm not, because I don't even understand. Now, that's not, it's brilliant material, but we need to make the answers to these questions as accessible as possible. And that's been the, the aim and goal of Towards Belief. So we've done that around suffering. So we did that with around nine different subjects. But um, science is another huge issue. And the idea that, well, you know, the new militant atheists prove there's no God because they're all scientists and, 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 and anybody who believed in science couldn't, couldn't believe in God. And that's simply not the case. Yeah. Look, I think, um, I mean, for those watching, there's so much wrapped up in that answer. And I really encourage you to go back and re-listen to it because, Carl, as I sit here, there's a few few key points that I, I think we should draw out. I think number one is that when you talk about science, if, if I look at the experience of the persecuted church, but also my experience in Western culture, 2,000 years ago or thereabouts, what you would do is you would sort of emulate in order to understand Okay, so what you do is you sit under rabbinic law or you do all of the things that sort of taught you about faith in order to one day get your stripes and truly understand it. It almost meant that you would, you know, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. It wasn't as though you needed the answers before you followed. You followed in order to get the answers, right? And that's yeah. a vastly different model to you come forward to 2020. And what we've kind of done in our best-intentioned efforts to make Jesus uh, cool, attractive, relevant, personal. We kind of tell the world, hey, let me answer your questions before you make a decision to follow him. And yeah. I think that's where that, that science or the belief uh, and science thing can really sort of wrestle and come undone for some Christians. What we try and do is we say, hey, let me answer all of your questions and show you what it means to follow God, and then you can make an educated decision. The wrestle in that moment is when questions around suffering come up, all complexity around gender or equality or any of those things, there's a vastly different understanding across the breadth of the church. And that's not a bad thing. But as long as we keep trying to answer people's questions before they follow Jesus, it's going to be really hard. I think then the second thing you talked about was the exclusive element of faith. And mm -hmm. again, one of the things that I would say, one of the great uh, blessings that I think will come out of COVID in this season is that as society sort of looks back over this moment in history, my expectation is that we're going to see what, what I'm calling a broadening of the gospel, okay? Mm -hmm. the, the reality is that people now are consuming information on their social media feeds from a vast array of different live streams because all of us are sharing uh, often or, or tuning into live events from our churches. And so we're seeing a broadening of people's um interaction with the gospel, different denominations. And, and um, what I'm hoping is that we'll see a kind of lowering of the denominational divide. I fear yeah, that yeah. over the last sort of um, couple of hundred years, some of the greatest persecutors of the modern church are actually Christian 
because we debate the idiosyncrasies of the denominational difference rather than embrace the true reality of the Great Commission and the fact that we're actually all in it together, right? The church is a bride of Christ, not a harem. And I think we're going to see a broadening of the gospel. Similarly, in this season, there is a great risk that we will look back and probably see a a market drop in the number of church-attending regular Christians. And I think that's partly because we will fall out of the routine of Western cultures in attending church in a centralized fashion. And you'll often hear people in 10 years maybe say, man, I used to go to church but back in when that, um, when that virus <laughs> thing happened. And then I kind of just you yeah. know, got out of the, the routine and, and never got back into it. Yeah. And so whilst we see a broadening of the gospel, we may also see a drop in the number of church attending Christians. And so I think you've yeah. got those two elements. You've got the, the, the side around exclusive faith, but also mm. that science-based thing. And then the last thing, you talked on um, was the notion that basically um, we, we, we need to, I guess, better, better articulate, particularly around those faith blockers around culture. Yeah. Well, yeah. If I look at the Australian church, I really call it, and for that matter, Western churches, they're what, what I call a monocultural church. Okay. Now that's not just in skin tone. I want yeah. to be really clear about that. I think we often look at, um, society and culture. It's a beautiful blend of all sorts of skin tones. But when yeah. you come to the church, there's often one prescriptive way that we say you interact and engage with God. Now, in the Middle East, we're seeing people come to faith from a Muslim background in um, South Asia, from a Hindu background or Buddhist background. What they do, people who have grown up in the tenets of another religion, they often find Christ, but they don't necessarily undo the condition and the training of their faith in the other style, right? So they learn scriptures. They, um, they in some ways, they wrote learn scriptures. They're bold and passionate evangelists. They, they want to pray five times a day. They often observe fasting as rituals. But when they come to a, a Western church, we often say, no, no, but that's not right. And I think that's our wrestle, Carl, is that one of those faith blockers yeah. is that unless we can become a truly multicultural church and realize yeah. that there are actually other ways that people can engage with God, that we run that risk of kind of um, railroading people into one set prescriptive expression of faith. Would would you agree with that or not? Yeah, Mike, I think think it's really interesting with with the the culture because, you know, if we're going to communicate Jesus to, say, a modern Western Australian culture, there are certain things that we need to do and not do so that we can communicate in, so that that what we say and do and how we meet and gather, which is kind of what you're getting at, doesn't become a blocker to faith. One of our one of our challenges, though, is where do we give into the culture and where do we speak into the culture? Where do we use kind of the, the, the cultural norms to help us into the culture? But where is it that we have to stand against the culture? Now, just in case we think this is a new problem, think about uh, Matteo Ricci in the 16th century or Hudson Taylor in the 19th century who both went to China and both faced the same issues. And when they went, they suddenly decided that they needed to jettison their Western clothes and start wearing Chinese-style clothes. They changed their hair style. There's a whole bunch of things that they did, and and, uh, the China Inland Mission with Hudson Taylor was, was famous because inland, I've never thought about this, but inland was incredibly important because they were all staying at the treaty ports, which were the safe places. Inland was the dangerous places, but it's where everybody was. Now, one of the issues that they, 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 the church argued about, especially the Catholic church, as missionaries in China, and they were missionaries in China, 
was a thing called ancestral worship. So people would go and sweep the graves of their ancestors. Now, the question was, was that a respectful way of dealing with your ancestors or was that worship that stood against the gospel? And the church is actually kind of in China over the years almost vacillated on that question, but it became an important question. If you think about Australian culture right now and take a thing like materialism and money, now there are places in the church where the church has done really well by telling everybody that's a good thing. <laughs> God wants you wealthy. And and everybody goes, oh, I'm up for that. Now, at what point do we challenge that and at what point do we run with that? And to be frank, go back again with what we were saying right at the beginning, Mike. What about the issue of sexual attraction? Do we kind of go, actually, the world has changed. The Bible wasn't so clear on that, even though it was. Um, uh, we, can, we can actually kind of bend on that because if we don't bend on that, we will be forced out of the, out of the community by the, the activist groups. And it's that whole tension of where do we allow expression of faith and belief to encapsulate culture, style, background, etc., and where do we go and know that stands against the values of the kingdom of God? And that's never going to be easy, never has been, and it won't ever be, but we have to keep going back and saying so, not what necessarily fits and what everybody likes. What does the Bible say? Are there places in the Bible where we go, actually, we, we, we can't actually move on that? And I, look, i got to say, personally, there's a few issues where, you know, you're constantly pushed by people and you kind of go, well, if I just, if I bent there, what I say would be much more acceptable. Mm. But is that is that where I should be going? And I think that all of us should never underestimate how difficult that is. Yeah, I love I love the subtlety of your, your statement around culture, what you stand for and what you stand against. I think that people probably, myself included, sometimes fail to grasp just how important that is. I mean, if we look, I think as far as the, the Western church goes, and we talk about Australia or New Zealand for that matter, in this moment in history, we're at a really unique but also incredibly important point because as culture changes, as values in culture change, you, you, I sort of find myself looking back over the 65 years of ministry with the persecuted church at Open Doors, and you ask yourself, well, how does an underground church emerge? How? Well, it emerges when a church chooses not to parallel society and culture, right? Because even at the height of the 50s and 60s in China, there was a centralized church. Now, under communism, you could still meet, providing you were also able to preach that you have to love your country and the ambiguity around that. If yeah. I look forward over the next two decades in Western nations, I particularly think for large churches in, in particular, this is going to be the hardest thing because when you base it around an attractional gospel, which again, it's not necessarily a wrong thing. Okay, yep. because their heart and their intention is to bring people to Jesus. But the longer that you parallel government in an attempt to remain relevant, relevant and cool, then you sort of can wake up and think, man, how do we end up over here? And what I think is, if I look forward, there's going to be that moment where we actually need to decide in as a metaphor, do we as churches become underground churches that actually stand up for the true beliefs yep. of what we claim to follow? Or do we try and keep the message as... Um, laissez-faire, impartial, but also appealing, and therefore walk this road. And what I think you'll find yeah. is over the next two decades, there will be an emergence of a two-church culture in Western societies. Where yeah. one I mean, church, hey, you know what? Yeah, go on. 
I was going to say, I mean, a book that the people listening who might want to explore this is Rod Dreyer, The Benedict Option, coming out okay. of the United States. And this is exactly the issue he's getting at. And, and it might, in a, in a place like Australia and Western countries, the government is not the problem, though it might, it might become the problem. The problem is the cultural elite. That's the problem. It's the sort of cool people, the, pe the people who, you know, write our papers and produce our, our shows and, and uh, the, the people kind of, you know, to be frank, who run the media in places like the countries like Australia and, and sort of, you know, tick this box, oh, that's okay and that's clearly not okay. And, and where do we sit? You know, I, I, mean, I think one of the problems within Australia for the church, you know, the church is always going to annoy some people. You know, that's, that's the case. It's, the question is, who are you prepared to annoy? And I actually think one of the challenges we have is that, you know, certain people react to something we say and we go, well, we don't really care what you think because we don't like you anyway. But then other people react and we're like, oh, that's really difficult. That puts us in a bad space. You know, if you go back, if you go back a number of, like the 50s and 60s, you know, when uh, Open Doors started, in a place like Australia, the church was in a neutral culture. And, 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 and a neutral culture, often the funny thing about the church and the neutral culture where the church was accepted, we actually made things that weren't important, important. I mean, things like going to movies or wearing makeup or listening to rock and roll. I mean, they're just almost hilarious now to think about it. But back in the, when the culture was neutral, we tended to make a big deal out of side issues. The intriguing thing now is we're not, we're, we've, we've moved out of a neutral culture. I wouldn't say it's toxic, but it's not a helpful culture, easy culture for the church to exist in. What, what we're in danger of doing is, is basically backing down on what are big issues rather than, you know, neutral culture making big issues of things that aren't. And I think that that's the question we've, we've got to understand, that if, as we shift into a culture where it may not be the government that's the issue, that it may be, but it may not, but it, it could be the people who are the elite of our culture who generate what's okay and what's not okay. That's that's the place of our greatest challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if I look forward even over the, the whole Jesus a Game Changer series, and, and to be yeah. honest, your journey in understanding the, the, the difference in culture and faith, if I look at series two, you sort of, you've explored what it was that took the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth despite the risks. And now, I think it was more than 50 interviews in 11 countries. Yep. Can you tell us, as we sort of look at that, and we even talk about the wrestles between culture and all of those things that we face here in the West, what, what did you learn on that journey around faith, suffering, risk, and what drives people to keep taking the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth despite the risks? Look, Mike, the thing that struck me most is that everywhere the gospel went, somebody paid for it, and they often paid for it with their life. And, uh, and we, we see that kind of in the, the area that Open Doors are, are functioning, working right now. But what, what I found really surprising is that there were certain countries that, um, that, that were actually really uh, incredibly difficult to be a Christian within. Now, you take Korea, for instance. Now, Korea, we, we, did, we did interviews in Korea and South Korea. I think it's 30% of South Koreans now go to church uh, or call themselves Christians. Uh, the, the biggest mega churches in the world are several churches, over 100,000 people in South Korea. Absolutely remarkable. 
And you, but but the, the history of South Korea, or Korea as a whole peninsula, um, is a very interesting history. One of the one of the, the fact that the first gospel that came to, to Korea actually were those who were leaving Korea in the 16th century, going up into China, meeting Jesuit missionaries, learning the gospel, the message of Jesus, and it, it was kind of like almost indigenous. They brought it back to Korea. But in that time, there are at least 9,000 or more people died as Korea as a nation tried to stand against Christian faith. You know, it's, it's almost never talked about. Didn't even know about it. The other one is, is just across the water from South Korea is in Japan. And Japan, again, Jesuits brought the gospel to Japan in the 16th century. It actually grew to potentially between 100,000 to 300,000. The, the Japanese um, shokens at the time decided to stand against it. Do you know that Japan faced 250 years of the worst oppression of Christian faith that I think you would see anywhere in the, in the world? Wow. In fact, what would happen over 250 years, Mike, you had to register, and this was specifically about Christianity, you had to register in a Buddhist temple and you had to prove every year that you were a Buddhist. And the way you did that is you turned up the Buddhist temple, you got your name signed off on a, on a book, and you had to step forward and you had to stand on two fumi. The fumi were, were brass pictures, as it were. One was a picture of Jesus and one was a picture of Mary. And you step forward. It wasn't. It wasn't enough just to say yes, I'm a Buddhist, and pay your yearly dues. You had to turn up, and you had to prove that you weren't a Christian by standing on these two fumi. That went on for seven generations, two hundred and fifty years, and it's a, it's the most remarkable story. Literally, thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians died in Japan. Many were crucified. On Nagas in Nagasaki, now most people know Nagasaki because of the second atomic bomb, but Nagasaki actually has a monument to the martyrs, and it was where 23 Japanese Christians in the late 16th century were, were, were crucified on 23 crosses on the side of a hill to say, you can't be Christian here. Now, those stories, now we, we hear about, you know, Brother Andrew, the beginning of the open doors going into China, remarkable stories and, and places like that. We tend to forget that in places like Korea and in Japan, there were those who actively and violently stood against Christian faith. They, um, in, in that, think, Carl, Carl, what do you think? I mean, it just it strikes me as that, that yeah. story about Japan is, is one that I've really um, I follow sort of closely with your journey through the series. What is it? It's going to be a really probably more difficult question to answer. It's not one I've thrown your way before, but I'm like, what is it that terrifies people of Jesus? I mean, you have a picture of him and Mary on the floor. Like, what is it about Jesus that terrifies religions, governments, um, people? What, yeah, what is it? I mean, I think there are two ways of answering that question, Mike, and one of them is is a kind of almost is a political answer because some of those who stood against Christians were actually standing against foreign involvement and that this was a foreign god and it was a foreign nation invading Japan. And, uh, and so they were standing against Christianity because it represented kind of, you know, Western values of the time, which is a very... So the, we, we can't, can't just pretend that it's all about the person of Jesus and Christianity 
it was its connection to, to kind of Western nations that were colonialising nations across the globe. And so those two things kind of were an issue. But I, I mean, I think that there are certainly those who have just decided that, you know, the person of Jesus is something we don't want anything to do with, you know. And it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's um, different faith approaches to that. Um, and, I, and in some ways I don't really have an answer because I wonder, I wonder, I can't prove this, I wonder whether it is just that whole spiritual battle. Um, you know, we, we don't stand against men or nations. We stand against principalities and powers in the world, which are, and there's evil evil within that. And I actually wonder whether part of that um, is that is the, the notion of the evil one standing against the, the spread of the name of Jesus. Now, I can't kind of prove that, but I do believe that that fits with Scripture. Yeah, I, um, you know, you come forward to, to the work we're doing even present day with Open Doors, and yeah. the reality is is that a lot of persecution exists on the premise that, to be honest, these countries would see that Christianity is a Western faith, right? And so when we go into some of those uh, Middle Eastern countries, or if I'm, I'm working in those countries with Bibles or Bible delivery, I'm often under the instructions to not say that I'm a Christian, but to say that I'm a follower of Jesus, Right, and for, for the people watching this, I hope they're only idiosyncrasies, but they, yeah. they will hopefully give you some more clarity on even just the subtleties of some of the drivers of persecution. And so when people predominantly in the Middle East would perceive Christians as American, uh, they would perceive them as 9-11, September 11, that kind of stuff. And so when we go there, we're, we're under the strict orders to not say we're Christian, but rather we're followers of Jesus. And then mm. you jump across to some other persecuted believers who would tell me, Carl, that isn't it funny how our government has far more respect for even one verse from the scriptures than you do in the West? They said, because even one verse of the Bible will terrify governments, right? But for you, you read it casually, complacently, flippantly, without respect or honor. They said, why is it that our government respects the Bible more than you? And I think that is an incredibly convicting but powerful question. Absolutely. Look, I think the other thing like, in all of this too is that the, the followers of Jesus, in the sense that giving all people dignity and worth across the board, uh, when they live out the words of Jesus fully, that Christian value that everybody matters, everybody counts, and everybody is of, of worth, that challenges often the, the, the way these nations work. And there are, there are parts of these nations where their attitude, values, and behaviours need to be challenged. And to be frank, many people don't want them challenged because they quite like the system because the people running the system are the people in control and they quite like the notion of being in control. So Christianity coming in to say you've got to care for the, the least, the lowest, the, the weakest, that's not something that they want to hear about and that, that often brings opposition. And, uh, you know, just like yes, yesterday, Mike, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually working on, a, on a, a new series right now. And uh, one of the people we interviewed was a lady called Jessie. She's in Edinburgh, but she's from Nigeria. And one of the great, one of the great heroes of her and her church and her denomination is Mary Slessor. And Mary Slessor turns up in Nigeria, in southern Nigeria, and discovers that what happens in southern Nigeria is that they believe twins are evil. So it, it, twins are, are just evil. So what do you do with, with evil twins? You kill them. Mm. And twins were taken into the evil forest and left to die or killed, and often the mother was killed as well. Now Mary Slessor doesn't turn up and go, that's your culture, don't want to mess with your culture. She turns up and says, you can't do that. Everybody matters. These kids matter. She is hauling kids out of the out of the forest. She is looking after kids. She is standing against the culture. 
all because it, now the people who ran the culture were not happy because mm. they were quite happy to kill the kids with twins because they'd always been doing that. Now that's an extreme example, but I think that where the teaching of Jesus confronts the culture of the time, and that's true for us today in Australia as well, right now, but in those nations, they, they prefer to keep the status quo and therefore let's not, let's not bring the teaching of Jesus into this. Yeah, look, I think that's probably even a great place to sort of finish. The, the, the thought around what, what elements of culture, for any of us watching this, what elements of culture have actually started to shape and conform our faith away from the true heart of Jesus? I think yeah. if I look across the persecuted church, they'll often say when all you have left is Jesus, you realise that Jesus is all you need. Yet, yeah. if I look at myself, I'll often tell people, you know, I measure my proximity to God based off his provision of safety. I say when my life is good and things are going well, God, you are good and you are close. But the moment yeah. it's opposite to that, I start going, well, God, where are you and how can this be? And so I think for all of us watching this, a great uh, question to ponder on is, well, what elements of culture may actually be clouding your faith or conforming yeah. it away from the true person of Jesus? Because when I look yeah. at the Jesus, the Game Changer series, and even the new one you're working on, and for the people watching this, it's a series based around individual stories. You heard one from Nigeria just then. But the reality is, I think for all of us, one of the beautiful things, I always say there's no hierarchy in testimony, but I tell you what, there's a lot you can learn from it. And so hearing how people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost, is a really, hopefully, enlightening and inspiring um, yeah. addition to our faith. And so I want to encourage you, as this series comes out on the new one from Carl and Jane and the Olive Tree team, to look at it. Because they're individual stories of how people have chosen to follow Jesus despite the risks, despite the costs, and in the face of cultural roadblocks. And I think for us, whether we're living here in Australia or in any Western nation for that matter, there are cultural roadblocks, cultural roadblocks, sorry, and there are things that although they may look different, they still have the same impact in our faith. And so the best way we can do it is to learn from people who have gone before us and yep. overcome them and being able to remain courageously close to Jesus. So, Carl, thanks so much for your time today. I know you're a busy guy and that um, you and Jane are in the middle of wrestling, you know, the team member in Victoria and trying to dodge COVID yeah. virus down there. You've got all sorts of things yes. happening. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's a great privilege. Anything you want to share with the people before you go and, and maybe why it is that you love and support the work of Open Doors? Look, I, the, the church has always expanded, like I said before, in the face of persecution, and and it often it did that in an isolated fa fashion. And I think if I were in the, in somewhere in the Middle East or some uh, sub-Saharan area where where I'm facing enormous persecution, one of the things I would feel is nobody cares, not alone. And so to have somebody where I look at from another part of the world who is not facing persecution but says, hey, we're going to turn up for you because you're following Jesus and we follow Jesus and we want to help you, that has got to be enormously helpful. So the idea that we would support people who would turn up for those in the most difficult situations seems to me to be a no-brainer. Amazing. Well, thanks, Carl. I'm going to let you go now. Um, I really appreciate you being That's with us. And um, I look forward to sort of hanging out with you at the next Open Doors event and um, catching up and maybe having a dinner together sometime. So thank you so much. So look, my hope is today that was a really great encouragement for you. I mean, Carl is a fantastic um, speaker, theologian, but also a guy who is so passionate about seeing the gospel of Jesus spread around the world. If this is a resource, you're welcome to use it in your churches. Feel free to, I don't know, copy it or reach out to us at Open Doors. We'll send you a link and you can play it as a message for your church. Um, 
share it or watch it with your Bible study groups. If you want to find out more about the work of Open Doors and how you can be involved, Em will post some uh, links in the comments and you can click on those and really find out more about how you can help the global body of Christ. Because the reality is, there are not many ministries out there that actually are aimed at ensuring the survival of the local church in some of the most conflicted and difficult countries on the planet. We always say that a well-functioning church, well, it ticks all those social justice boxes, but it's always with the heart of Jesus because it impacts the communities. And my hope is that together, we can actually bring those two sides of that church together. It's actually not about open doors. I, to be honest, I really couldn't care less about having our name on different things. What I care about is that both you, I, and the people who pay a great price for following Jesus all over the world are linked together in a non-transactional way, in a way that we can actually learn from them, hear their stories, and you know what? Yeah, give some money up, give some prayer up, whatever it might be, to actually help them survive. So this, this for me, to be honest, it transcends any of that organizational stuff, but I want to encourage you, if you're able to find out more, support our work, learn from the persecuted church, then please listen to them, hear their stories, and ask yourself, what parts of your faith have been shaped, shaped and conformed by culture and maybe need to be resharpened or readdressed? Thanks so much for being with us today. We have got some other great conversations coming up and we look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore, Jocelyn Gotto, and James Kazina. We hope the life-changing stories and lessons from the persecuted church help you follow Jesus no matter the cost. To find out more, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. I'm your producer, Bethany Ross, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast.